Now we could be literal and call this series just simply James, but I think when you read the epistle of James, you see a very subtle undercurrent theme of togetherness. James is probably the first book of the New Testament era to be written and sent out to the churches. And so James writes this for them to read as churches. It was meant to be read together. And so that's why I've named this series simply Together. There's going to be a lot of emphasis if you were here last week or you watched the service. There's definitely an emphasis this year on church unity, on us teaching the same thing, preaching the same thing, being on the same page with those things. We have to be together. That doesn't mean we have to agree with everybody uh, outside who calls themselves Christians, but here we're together. Amen? And so we're beginning this series in in James chapter 1. If you have your Bible, go ahead and follow along with us, or you can follow along on the screens. But it begins with this. He says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Perseverance, steadfastness, endurance. Depending on your translation, that's pretty much the key word we see there, right? Perseverance is how God builds us. It's how he challenges us. It's how he grows us. And when we see this particular passage, what we see, really what James is explaining, is perseverance makes us sound, stable, and secure. He's perfecting us. He talks about a perfecting work that he's doing in us. That's through perseverance. That's through those trials, those those very hard times. Now, when we read James, as I said, we shouldn't read it just as individuals, because if we read it and we understand it only as individuals, we're missing out on a very large part of his message. The Holy Spirit is saying through these words, not just to speak into the life of the individual Christian, but it will build a stronger church. It will build a bigger, better, more perfect body together together. 
This encourages the individual believer. I don't say don't read James on your own. That's not at all what I'm trying to say this morning. But as you grow through these things that James is describing, if we grasp it as a church, if we grasp it together, we will become secure, stable, and sound. That's what perseverance does to the body. If any of you have ever ran long races or you've committed to a a three or four month workout program, it takes perseverance. It takes being steady and steadfast and holding into it and, and, and being committed if you want your body to be stronger and healthier. And that's what we see taking place in this passage, if we experience trials of various kinds, it's, it's why we ask for wisdom. It's why we understand the, the positions we are in to operate in all our circumstances because God is using those things to make us sound, stable, and secure. And when I say us, I don't just mean me and you. I mean us together as a church The first thing we see is James is very clear that he is making us sound. We are becoming sound. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion. We're going to stop right there. Sorry, he says greetings too. Now, the name James can be very confusing, and I've, I've actually gotten these guys confused so much because there's three different James, Jameses, that you read about in the New Testament. There's James in Acts chapter 12, who is James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. He's sometimes called James the Elder. In Acts 12, he's put to death. He dies very early on in church history. Herod makes an example out of him, and then he arrests Peter, if you remember that story. Well, that's James the Elder. And there's another guy they call James the Less, or James the Younger. He's James the son of Alphaeus. He might be the brother of Levi, because Levi, or, or Matthew, is also called Levi, they have the dad named Alphaeus, both of them. Might be the same guy. And his mother is one of those women who witnesses the crucifixion. But this is an entirely different James. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. Why doesn't he introduce himself as that? Well, he's got another brother named Jude. Jude, in his epistle, will say, I'm the half-brother of James. But they don't relay the fact they're half-brothers to Jesus. Why is that? Because they didn't always believe in Jesus. And at one point, Jesus basically disowns them. Jesus says, because they come to kidnap him and take him away, thinking Jesus had lost his mind, Jesus says, well, who's my, fa- who's my mother and my brothers? It's those who follow me. It's not his direct family. Now, we understand, Paul tells us, that after his resurrection, there was this life-changing moment for James where Jesus, as the resurrected Christ, appears to James, and that shakes him, that, that grips him, that changes his life, and eventually he becomes a leader within the church. He's not an apostle. Like Luke, he's writing, but he's not writing as an apostle. In Acts chapter 1, when they go to replace Judas, James is not even mentioned. He does not fit the qualifications of an apostle. But we do know he's a leader in the early church. In fact, he's basically running the show by Acts 15. 
In Acts 15, they have this, they have this whole council because they don't know what to do with the Gentile Christians. And they have this whole council, and all the heavy hitters of your Bible, of your New Testament, they're there. They show up. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, all the apostles, they gather in Acts 15. And who's telling them the final decision? James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's leading the church. But can I tell you something this morning? He does not care about his titles. He doesn't want them. He doesn't want to be known as James, an apostle, because he's not one. He doesn't want to be known as James, the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't even say James, the guy who's leading everything. He says in humility that he is a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen this as recently as Christmas Eve in our, in our sermon on Mary. The word slave or doulos in the Greek, it sometimes gets translated servant or bondservant. James refers to himself that way, and he refers to Christ as kyrios, Lord or master. Much in the same way, Paul, Peter, John, Jude, and Mary, Jesus' mother, all do the same thing. Why? Because James understands his is a life completely owned by Christ. Completely to be dominated by his Lord. By the way, that is the model for all of us. That's why he says this. That we imitate that mindset. Jesus himself said, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Paul Washer says it this way. The gospel does not call us to receive Christ as an addition to our life but as our life. If we don't see ourselves as a slave of Christ, we need to rethink our relationship with Christ. Notice he doesn't give any other title, and yet the audience knows they're going to receive this, understanding that he has the authority to write to them in this way. And James is going to say some pretty hard things, isn't he? I'm sure many of you have read James a few times. Martin Luther, I think he called it the epistle of straw. He didn't like it. Because there's some hard stuff in there. And yet, these people receive it. Who are these people? Who's he writing to? Well, James tells us. He says to the 12 tribes. Now, that's an obvious reference that tells us these are Jewish people. These are sons of Israel. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know they're Christians because he says he's writing under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they're Jewish and they see this, they're only Jewish, they're not Christian, and they hear him say Jesus Christ, they're going to go, well, who's that? What's he to me? I don't accept that. No, he says this, and they immediately go, oh, he's our Lord too. These are Jewish Christians who are receiving this writing. Why not Gentile Christians? Well, that's a testament to the fact this is an early book of the New Testament. There are not a lot of Jewish Christians by the time James is writing this. In fact, the idea of a Gentile church was kind of a foreign concept. He's writing this in probably as early as 38 AD, as late as the mid-40s. There are not a lot of established Gentile churches, okay? 
But there are Jewish Christians. They were the first ones to receive the gospel. They were the first ones to go out with it. And like I said, they didn't know what to do with the Gentile Christians at one point. That's why they had the whole council in Jerusalem. And James says these Jews were in the dispersion or diaspora. What does that mean? Where's that at? Well, it's first mentioned in John chapter 7, verse 35. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, someday there's going to come a time. And you're going to come looking for me and you're not going to be able to find me. And the Jews hear this and they say, what's he talking about? How are we going to not be able to find him? Is he going to go to the Greeks? Into the dispersion? And he's going to, he's going to teach the Greeks? What's he mean by that? Well, James is talking about the dispersion. That is the Jewish people who are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. They were living among the Greeks. We conclude that from from what they say in John. But in Acts 2, we actually see the dispersion come home. The day of Pentecost, they come from all over the Roman Empire. They are coming back. They were the dispersion coming back for the festival. So James is writing to those who were Jewish who went back home after the, the events of the day of Pentecost. And what's he do? How does he start this letter? He says, hello. It's a joyful greeting. That's what that is. Greetings actually has the root word of joy. It's a joyful hi. We might say howdy, right? And he continues in verses two and three. He just gets right down to business. I love, I love how James is just, all right, hi, we're good, right? All right, now listen to this. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. I want you to look at those words again. If you have your Bible open, look at those again. It's in your bulletin if you don't. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. The New Living Translation words it this way. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for joy. Why does he start out like that? Because we don't do those things, do we? When these various trials come up, what do we do? We get angry, we get bitter, we get upset. We might say some very unchristian things under our breath. We get frustrated That's what we normally do. James says, no, no, no. You count it joy. Did you hear who he's writing to, by the way? Jewish people living in a pagan society. They are outsiders. They're going to face adversity. And then they become Christians. They're going to become even more ostracized, even more taken out of society. They're going to face even more trials of temptation to deny Christ testings, enticements to sin in the pagan world, opportunities of the enemies of the church, opportunities they would take to attack those of the Christian faith. He says, take all of that in joy. Has James lost his mind? I mean, really? How many of you have hit your, you ever been nailing something? under a wall and you missed the nail and you hit it with your, you hit your thumb with the hammer? Did you go, mm, praise Jesus? I don't. Mm, it hurts so bad, right? No, no, James says, no, that's, that's even a small trial. That's even a small trial. You ever get up in the middle of the night, 
I know some of you men do this because we, we're men. You get up in the middle of the night, got to use the bathroom, and you stub your baby toe. In that moment, you go, yes, Lord, hallelujah. No, no, you do not. You might shout something, but it's not that. How many of you have had a flat tire, frustrations at work, you burnt the dinner? These things we call first world problems, they are just as derailing as anything. Getting a sickness, being imprisoned for your faith, public insults, public beatings, any other test. In fact, sometimes, church, I'm going to be honest with you, I would rather go to jail for my faith in Jesus Christ than stub my toe in the middle of the night. Because those are the times where I really question, am I saved? It, ride with me to Fargo sometime when I get behind someone with Minnesota plates. You want to hear your pastor question his salvation? Oh, I don't know why God made that guy, Right? My daughter's nodding her head. We would rather face the big trials sometimes. That's why he says various trials. It literally would be read tests of a variety of colors. It's the little trials, the little foxes that wreak destruction on the vineyards. That's what Song of Solomon says. So how does James expect us to have joy how are we supposed to pull that off ah he says knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance knowing means having the mindset right set your brain on this mode that's what he's saying that you're going to have joy knowing that the testing and by the way that's not a test a bunch of questions and answers and it's not even necessarily a, a, a bad day it's it's being thrown in the fire like gold or silver purified having the impurities removed that sounds very uncomfortable doesn't it that's the kind of testing proving the authenticity of something the testing of your faith brings about perseverance oh okay so when I'm frustrated, when I'm angry, when I'm hurt, that's supposed to be a comfort. That, okay, God's doing something. He's giving me perseverance. You realize what he is basically saying up until this point. Hey, guys, cheer up when life is hard, because since you're suffering, you're going to be able to endure more suffering. In other words, relax, guys. This is not a comfort. Relax, guys. God's making you hurt so he can hurt you some more. That, that's a comfort? Pfft. It cannot be what James is really saying, can it? That's ridiculous. That's why context matters. Verse 4. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ah, there it is. That's the other shoe dropping, right? There's the hook. Let perseverance have its perfect work. Let means you have to stand back. Stop trying to fix it yourself. Stop trying to change the circumstances. Be patient. Let it happen. Let these things unfold. 
We have to be patient and watch as the perseverance begins to have its effect within us. Let perseverance have its perfect work. That word perfect would be better read, better understood as a perfecting work. It's a maturing work, a growing to adulthood work. We're going to see the word perfect again in verse 4. But this first time, we should really understand that it is God growing us, maturing us. He's using the trials, the tests, the frustrations, the temptations to build us into something different, something greater, something stronger. Paul uses similar words in Ephesians 4 when he tells us about the the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and how the, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers are equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Paul continues by saying that they keep equipping. Verse 14 in Ephesians 4, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The purpose of the trial is to make you sound. That is a comfort then. That must be a comfort to us. You see, we speak of having sound doctrine and having a sound mind But through the trials of various kinds, we are being made sound in perseverance as he perfects us. James even concludes this. He says, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now there we see that word perfect again, right? But this is the final product. This word means without defect, without blemish. It's, it's the same root Greek word, but the tense of it means to be fully developed, fully mature, so that the maturing work can be completed within you, so that you can become sound. Those trials, the whole point is that we become fully developed, fully complete. The Greek word for complete, by the way, is holoclero, and it means something similar. It means to have all that is necessary finished in every respect, again, to be sound. And if you'll be sound, you'll become stable. Verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now look at that again. But if any of you lacks wisdom, okay, first of all, What that is saying is you have to be honest with yourself. You've got to look at who you are and be willing to admit, hey, I am not mature. I am not complete. I'm lacking something. And James mentions wisdom. How many of you would love wisdom? Right? We should all want that. Wisdom is a good thing. But... What does he mean by wisdom? Because I don't know if I want his version of it, right? I would love to be King Solomon and be able to pick all the right winning lotto tickets or whatever he did to get rich, right? Well, we know he did more than that, but <laughs> wisdom, as James is defining it, it comes from the Greek word Sophias. You never know, you never know anybody named Sophia? That's, her name means wisdom. 
It's the ability to utilize knowledge and experience with common sense and insight. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? The James is talking about getting wisdom, which we gain through experience. And what did he just talk about? Experiencing various trials. Wisdom is taking that experience, taking the knowledge that you gain from it, and being able to use that knowledge. That's wisdom. It's maturing. Now, I know I mentioned Solomon. God gave Solomon wisdom. First, uh, Second Chronicles one eleven tells us that. We know in 1 Corinthians 12, it speaks of the word of wisdom, but these are miracles. This is a gift of the Spirit. The wisdom James is referring to is received with life, with living. That's why the Proverbs, Proverbs talks a lot about wisdom. The Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, The honor of young men is their strength, and the majesty of old men is their gray hair. Should be seeing a lot of wisdom this morning as I look out in our congregation. Amen? Getting some in my beard, so I am not making fun, believe me. Gray hair means you've lived. It means you've gained experience. And hopefully, you should have gained wisdom through that. So if you want wisdom, ask God. But if it comes with experience, you better be careful, right? Be careful. Because if wisdom comes through experience, what's God going to give you if you ask for wisdom? Experience. He's going to put you to the grind, isn't he? He's going to give you trials. He's going to give you testing. He's going to give you opportunity to grow, to mature. You ever ask God for patience? <laughs> Some of you parents. Amen. I did. I asked God for patience and I want it now. Instead, he teaches us to wait, doesn't he? Teaches us to be patient. When we ask God for perseverance or we ask God for wisdom, what's he going to do? He's going to give you the opportunity to develop it. Why does God do that? Why not just give us a miracle like a Solomon situation? Show up in my dream and boom, I've got, in, I've got uh, the greatest wisdom anybody could ask for. Because what did Solomon do with all his wisdom? He fell. God grows wisdom slowly inside us because it is not cheap wisdom he wants to give you. James is going to go on to say later in chapter 3, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. God wants to give us good wisdom, strong wisdom, unshakable wisdom, so that we're sound and become stable. Now notice what James says about God's granting this request. He gives to all generously. He gives to all without reproach. It'll be given to them who ask for it. When we ask God for wisdom, what's he do? He sends trials. That's the first step to wisdom, right? When we ask God, what does Proverbs tell us? Proverbs 9.10. When we ask God, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, if you're going to ask God for wisdom, be afraid he might answer that. Or how he might answer that. 
You, answer, you, you pray that with fear and trembling, Lord. I want wisdom, but don't give me so much it crushes me. Don't teach me so harshly that I'll be broken. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in our fear of the Lord, what are we also counseled to do? In that fear, Proverbs 3, 5, 3, 5, trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust. We ask in fear, but we also ask in faith. That's what trust really is. God gives wisdom generously because he gives it through trials. That's how he delivers it. And through those, we learn to trust in him, have our faith in him all the more. We persevere, we grow because we want to become sound. We want to become stable. But verse six, but he must ask in faith, doubting nothing for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Look at that again. Look in your Bible real quick. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. Now this phrase gets taken out of context and abused, used to manipulate people if they don't receive the answer to their prayer. Someone will say, well, you didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough faith to keep your healing or receive your healing. That is a manipulation tactic that is not found in the Bible. If anyone tells you that, you tell them the pastor would like to have a word. That is not biblical. What James is saying is that when we ask for these things, we must trust God, have faith in him when we pray. Faith is the Greek word pistis. And it's that confidence or that reliance upon God to trust him based, a trust based on our belief. Our belief is based on our knowledge of him. In other words, if we do not have stable theology, then we will not have stable faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We've looked at that passage before in the past, but hope is the word elpis, and it means not just hoping for something someday, some way, somehow might happen. It's not that. The biblical hope, elpis, is it's something that's assured though the circumstances may not all be known. Something we know is going to happen. We may not know all the details. We may not see all the things. And yet we know the source. And therefore we know the truth. And so we can pray in faith and live in hope. In short, we would say we pray trusting God because we know God. We know his character. And because we truly know him, we pray submitting to him. We pray in his will because we understand his will or we, at least we know his will. Our faith does not bully or manipulate the creator of the universe. He said what he's decreed. He said before that if, if he's decreed something, even if Noah himself or Daniel or Job were to pray, it wouldn't change the circumstances. And yet we pray in faith that God's will be done. We pray in faith making our requests known to God, Paul says in Philippians 4. Because we believe, we have faith that our prayer does matter. And because God tells us to pray when Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 11, when you pray, Jesus is assuming his disciples will pray. He tells them in Matthew 6, 
pray then like this. He's commanding them to pray. We're to do that in faith. Well, if God's already set everything up, then why bother? Well, hold on a second. Look at, look at Moses. Moses prays. God says, I'm going to, you know what? I'm so angry at Israel right now. I'm just going to wipe them off the map and start over with you. And so Moses intercedes on their behalf and God spares them. And people will take that verse and they'll say, ah, pastor, see, see, our prayers can sway God. Our prayers are going to change everything. Well, again, this is why we pray. Because God threatened judgment. He did not decree it in that moment. Moses' prayer succeeds because God is speaking an intention. He's not giving an unchangeable declaration in that moment. Nor does God say that prayer will not change the decree. He does this later in Jeremiah 4.28, though, with other things, other circumstances. Prayer does change things. We affirm this. We believe this. Most of all, it changes us. I mean, many times I've prayed for God to change someone else. Instead, God's changed my heart. But we are not what's called an open theist. We're not open theists who believe God is not in control. Notice even that whenever in Exodus 32, when Moses does pray in faith, God in his sovereignty knew Moses was going to pray. And so Moses becomes this example for Israel and an example for us in making our request known to God and God giving us what we ask for in accordance with his will. That's what Moses appeals to. That's what Moses points out in that moment. He's praying in faith, but he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by yourself. This is Exodus 32, 13. You said to them, I'll multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I've spoken, I'll give your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. In other words, you didn't make that promise to me. You decreed that to them, Lord. Remember that? How does Moses have the boldness to pray that? How does he have the faith to pray that? Well, first of all, he knew the word. He knew what God had decreed. He knew what God had said. And second, he knew God. And so he prays in faith. It is faith, our belief, our knowledge of God that makes us stable as we pray. Look again in your, in your Bible there. It says, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed about by the wind. It's like the irregular motion of the, of the waves. If you've ever been on a, a beach and a storm has been out a few miles out, those waves are not as consistent as they were before the storm. And they're not the same size, each one. Some are going to be a lot bigger. I watched a video of a storm. I was going to show it, but I didn't bookmark it, so I lost it. I'm sorry, Pastor Fail. But this storm was brewing, and at one moment, this lighthouse, just a few waves crashing on the shore, and the next second, a huge, massive wave covers this entire lighthouse. The lighthouse stands, it perseveres, and the next few waves are just small waves again. And then there's a big one, and it continues like that. That's, that's the person tossed about by the wind, thrown here and there. This is why Paul, again, this is why Paul emphasizes the importance of teaching and equipping the church, that the people are not tossed here and there, he says. And no Christian truly wants that in their life, by the way. Nobody should want an, in, an unstable relationship with Christ. Seeking a mountaintop after a mountaintop after a mountaintop experience, emotional 
fun at the altar one week, emotional prayer meeting the next, that sort of thing. That's not stable. We cannot have stability without stable footing, without being sound. The experience of various trials teaches us perseverance. The perseverance helps us stay grounded and stable. So he says, if we lack wisdom, ask God. And he gives us more trials, more experience. He makes us more grounded. Gets our footing even more stable. You see, it all ties together like that. But if we're not sound, if we're not stable, we are warned, verse 7, For that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Why would he? Why should he? He has no faith. He's self-deceived. He supposes he should get something, but he's unsettled in his mind or his beliefs. And he's vulnerable to being thrown every which way. I keep saying he. It could very well be she, by the way. They might receive general gifts from God, food, clothing, income. But that's not a sign of God's blessing. That's just general provision. General gifts of God's providence. Their prayers are dead. They may have some faith, but it's an unsettled faith. A faith that is on the wrong things or in the wrong things. Even a distorted version of Christ. That person's faith is not sound, and therefore it's not stable. And he's not stable, or she's not stable. Our life imitates our theology, so the instability of this person's theology flows throughout their life. It just makes sense. Look here at this last part. Being a double-minded, what's he say? Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's the Greek there is haunting. It's a word James probably made up himself. It's dicycus. It means the duality of selves, a split personality. This is the man or woman who comes to church and they seem to have everything together, but they are wishy-washy Monday through Saturday. It has nothing to do with their mental health, but their faith is bipolar. One week they're fine, the next week they're just so dead, so down. The next time you see them, they're good again. Up and down, spiritual roller coaster. They're a person of faith in the church service. They're a person of faith when they're surrounded by other Christians. But the moment they get in the workplace and things get hard, this man or woman is a hypocrite. Hypocritos is the Greek word. They have faith, they have beliefs, but they do not trust when the rubber meets the road. And therefore, they receive nothing. James will actually later make a different point about them. And like I said, James is a little more blunt even than me. James says, draw near to God, chapter 4, verse 8. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's the same word. He's making it clear the double-minded person, at the very least, they are not a mature believer. If they're a believer at all, they're unstable at best. Church, this cannot be us. That's a time where we have to stop and say, is that me? Could that be me? If we lack wisdom, ask God in faith. He gives generously. But know what you're asking for. Sometimes we ask God questions we don't really want the answers to. 
but ask in faith, or you're already starting off on shaky ground. Instead, we're to become stable. So we seek to become sound and then become stable, and the stable Christian becomes a secure Christian. Finally, verse 9 and 10, becoming secure, but the brother of Humble circumstances is to boast in his high position and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. The brother of humble circumstances is now going to boast in his high position. This brother was low, but in Christ he's been brought high. You see, poor Christians, people who are poor on this planet, poor in earthly wealth, they understand they have the greatest Riches of all, eternal life in Christ Jesus. By the way, if you're sitting here today and you have a roof over your head, a bed to sleep in, and $10, you're one of the richest people on planet Earth. So this doesn't really apply to us, does it? The poor person, they, they know their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that's the only treasure they have. That's the only treasure they truly need. Christ did not die exclusively for the rich, but he also did not die exclusively for the poor. He died to save sinners, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we turn from our sin and we believe we have eternal life, whether we're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Later in chapter 2, James is going to address how the church should treat the poor, those who are from poverty. We're not to show partiality within the church. God shows no partiality. Paul points out later, it doesn't matter a person's status prior to salvation. He says it doesn't depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. And the humble brother can rejoice in that. The, the poor, poverty-stricken brother can rejoice in that because now he's a co-heir with Christ. But now check out the contrast here. The rich man is to boast in his humiliation. The rich brother, though he might have worldly things, he truly understands his need for a deliverer, for a savior, for the atoning death of a perfect savior. The poor man may feel a sense of elevation in his salvation, but the rich man, the once proud rich man, understands the true poverty of his soul. His trials have led him to see the need for a deliverer, like I said, and therefore his brother, this brother recognizes his absolute true brokenness. And he rejoices in the fact that though he may wear the finest clothing money can buy, they are but rags before the holiness of the Almighty God. If he does not recognize this, he's like a flowering grass, he will pass away. All his wealth will fade. Jesus told the disciples for this reason, he said, don't store up for yourself treasures in heaven. I'm sorry, don't store up for, <laughs> I made that mistake. He says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures for yourselves in heaven. I said that wrong the first time, sorry. The only security we have is in that which we cling to. You want to find out who your God really is, who you really serve? What do you cling to when life is hard? And who do you pray to when life is good? He's the only unshakable thing. 
Any earthly wealth we have, we have to understand that will fade one day. Any poverty or suffering we have, we know that's only temporary. Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. In verse 11, For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now this seems kind of random, to just throw this in right here. The sun rises with scorching heat. Okay. Withers the grass. All right. Flower falls off. What, what's he doing here? What's he getting at? Well, James is using an illustration that his readers would be familiar with. The local flowers of Palestine. and The flowering grasses in that region. He's making a point. And they would be able to understand this because they've been there. They've seen it for themselves. But on top of that, there's a double... Double meaning here. He's also referring to something Isaiah says in Isaiah 40. And a Jewish person would know this. They would be able to pick up on this quickly. Verse, verse 8 of Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Compare this to the rich person. Before his conversion, he trusted in material belongings and things of his wealth. But they're going to fade away, so he should put his faith in the word of God because that's truly what stands forever, what is stable. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will also fade away. This is very close to what Christ himself says in Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool. He stores up all his crops, all his wealth, all, he hoards all of his treasures. He thinks, I'm good, I'm going to live the, the rest of my life in just total merriment. I'm, going to, I'm just going to coast from now on, God said to him, you fool this very night, your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? Now it might seem when we read this, like James is, is picking on the rich, like he's singling them out, he's being kind of harsh with them, kind of mean, but the reason he dwells so much on them is that the poor have learned to be content being poor, to have their earthly wealth taken away, that's nothing new to the person from poverty. That's like the kid who ate bologna sandwiches every day of his life. He gets to college and all he can afford is bologna sandwiches. It's nothing new. You've grown accustomed to it. But a rich Christian, that's, that's a rare thing for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Christ says that himself, doesn't he? And when he gets done talking with a rich young ruler, he says, hey, it, it's, a hard, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Because any threat to their wealth, we see this with the rich young ruler, any threat to their riches, that's the greater trial they're going to go under. They're not accustomed to that. That's an infringement upon their lifestyle, their comfort. And as people, we like our comfort, don't we? The thought process is that if they have become sound, they're capable to boast in their lowliness and their humiliation. If they're if they understand the value of things versus the value of eternity, they're stable. And so they've persevered and now they're becoming secure. And if they are down to their last penny, if everything was to hit them like a hurricane, they're not going to be shaken easily. They can sing just like we can in our security. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground 
is sinking sand. So we conclude with verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. He's summarizing what he's just told us. Blessed is the man who's sound, whose doctrine is sound, whose theology is sound, whose understanding and his faith allow him to trust in the Lord no matter what life throws at him. He's good. For once he's been approved, once he is stable, once he's fully mature, and he's shown himself immovable, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In other words, he has eternity to cling to. He's going to receive that crown of life the Lord promises to those who love him. By the way, this crown, it's the Greek word stephanos. It's not a crown of metal. It is not the crown of a king. Those crowns are called diadems. They belong to Jesus. In fact, Revelation says on his head are many diadems. We don't want that crown. We want Christ to have that crown. Amen? We want him to be king. We want him to be Lord. We want him to rule. We want the Stephanos. That's the crown of olive leaves they would give the winner at the Olympic Games. That shows that we've got the victory, that we've endured, that we've persevered, that we've fought the good fight, we finished the race, we've taken hold of eternal life to which we're called, we've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's, that's the crown I want. That's the crown we should want. That's why we persevere. And if as individuals we persevere, we're able to help one another do the same and together we'll become a church that is sound, stable, and secure. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back this morning. We're gonna begin to close and with each message in this series over the next couple of months, while it's something that will hopefully speak to you as an individual, I would ask you to pray, Lord, how can I take this and put this into my life in the church? How can I help others build? How can I be about together. If trials give us perseverance, and perseverance therefore builds us into sound, stable Christians, we can become a sound, secure, or sound, stable, secure church. But the key word there is we, us, together. J.C. Ryle once wrote, beware of divisions. One thing the children of the world can always understand, they don't understand doctrine. But they do understand quarreling and controversy. Be at peace among yourselves. I said this last week, we're building, we're growing. And it doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been a Christian or anything of that nature, you should still be seeking to grow in Christ. But when we grow, we face adversity. That's why we need to be together, to have a church family, believers to grow with, that we grow together. Maybe you don't believe yourself to be sound or stable or secure. That's okay. That's why you're here. Grow with us. Grab a friend, ask him to pray with you. Grab a family member, ask him to hold your hand and pray with you. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter the trials, temptations, because God is still God and he's still good and you have a church family here to be with you through those things. We'll face them together. Amen? 
Will you stand as we worship in closing this morning?